I'm Brandi Powell, and this week for Tom Hauser, early voting is off to a brisk start in Minnesota ahead of the August 14th primary. The Secretary of State's office has sent out nearly 17,000 absentee ballots in the first week of early voting. That is up more than 60% from the same time period in 2016, the last major election cycle. And so far, nearly 1,700 ballots have been returned. That's up nearly 30% from two years ago. More than 40% of the ballot requests have come from Hennepin County, where there is a competitive DFL race for the 5th Congressional District. Election officials say competitive primary races for governor and state attorney general are also likely driving up those early voting totals. You can vote absentee either in person or by mail through August the 13th. And with early voting now underway for the primary, the state is well into preparations for the fall election season. But a number of precincts are running into a shortage of election judges, particularly bilingual ones. Our Todd Wilson shows us what's being done in Hennepin County to fix the situation. The city of St. Louis Park is an extremely diverse community. What are some of the dominant languages here other than English sure. in St. Louis Park? Uh, certainly Russian, which a lot of people may not know. Uh, Russian is a dominant language, Spanish. There's also a large Somali population in the city. Melissa Kennedy is the city clerk. She has the responsibility of making sure everyone who is registered to vote has a chance to vote regardless of the barriers of language. We have a lot going on at one time. We have election judge training, voter education and outreach. Much of our presentation. With the upcoming primary election, Kennedy says she is fine for now with 300 election judges for 16 precincts. But with an eye towards the general election in November, she says she needs another 100 judges. Her big concern is with having enough bilingual judges on hand. How many would you say you'd need, do you think? We would like to be able to have at least two staffed at each precinct throughout the day um, so that there's not a break in that service. It's about 32 total. Right. Cities across Hennepin County need judges to help with primary and general elections. They're looking for a balance of judges from each party affiliation. And all cities are seeking bilingual judges who speak Spanish, Somali, Hmong, Vietnamese, or other languages. And we try to source folks who, who also speak those languages and that our um, election judges in the polling place really reflect the population that they're serving so voters can come in and get the help that they need. Minneapolis is short 200 election judges and needs 5 to 10 folks who speak Somali and Hmong. Brooklyn Park needs help with various African languages for 24 precincts. Kennedy says the population of St. Louis Park is ever-changing. She believes she's found a solution to her problem. We're also trying to uh, engage the students in St. Louis Park at both St. Louis Park High School and Benilde. Many of them can provide that dual role and provide those language services as well. Todd Wilson, 5 Eyewitness News. Well, statewide, more than 30,000 Minnesotans are needed to serve as election judges at more than 3,500 polling places. That's according to the Secretary of State's office. Judges are trained in everything from greeting and assisting voters to overseeing ballot counting machines and compiling voter statistics at the end of Election Day. You must be eligible to vote in Minnesota, be able to read, write, and speak in English, and attend a summer training session in your city or county. Students ages 16 and 17 can apply to be election judge trainees. And state law allows you to take time off work to serve as an election judge without penalty. We posted more information for how you can apply to be an election judge on our website, kstp.com. 
Well, several lawmakers toured areas of Minnesota affected by severe weather and flooding. On Friday, Governor Dayton, Senator Tina Smith, and Congressman Colin Peterson visited Slayton, Ballatin, and Walnut Grove, where a creek ripped through this road. Look at that. And on Thursday, the governor declared states of peacetime emergency in these 36 counties, plus the Red Lake Nation. They'll receive help recovering from flooding, high winds, and even tornadoes that have hit since early June. The declaration will help counties get state and federal money to pay for damaged infrastructure repairs that the county often cannot afford on its own. Tomorrow, President Trump is expected to announce his choice for the next Supreme Court nominee. ABC News reports there are three frontrunners. There they are, Amy Coney Barrett, Brett Kavanaugh, and Raymond Kethledge. Last week, Democrats made an unlikely push urging the president to nominate Merrick Garland. President Barack Obama nominated Garland for the high court back in 2016, but was denied a confirmation vote by Republicans. Minnesota Senator Amy Klobuchar sits on the Judiciary Committee, which means she will get a chance to directly question the president's nominee. Senator Klobuchar says so far there's nobody on the president's shortlist who she'd support. When you look back at their record, a number of them are writing concurrences where they go out of their way to try to make new law. Again, the president is expected to reveal his nominee tomorrow. Be sure to stay with 5 Eyewitness News and KSTP.com for these latest developments. A new law requiring Minnesota schools to test drinking water for lead is now in effect. A 5 Eyewitness News investigation revealed nearly one out of every four Minnesota public schools surveyed were not following state-suggested guidelines. Lawmakers passed a law after our investigation requiring schools to test their water once every five years and let parents know the results. You can watch Eric Shalou's investigation into school water testing on our website at KSTP.com. A new facility will make it easier for first responders to learn how to deal with people in crisis. This $13 million smart center will likely be built in Invergrove Heights. But as Brett Hoffman tells us, the lessons learned here could have an impact statewide. Engine 7 and ladder 3 to check a possible jumper. Experts say these calls are happening more and more. We are going to have first responders responding to more suicide attempts. Report of a possible male with a mental health issue. The number of suicides in Minnesota is on the rise. Minnesota, it's gone from about 400 some people in 2001 to close to 800 last year. And so we need to make sure that officers know how to respond. Officers are getting a better handle on how to interact with those having a mental health issue. Last year, the state approved $24 million to cover four years worth of training. We had the money coming. Um, but we didn't have a space for that training to occur. That's why there are plans for this, the Safety and Mental Health Alternative Response Training Center, or SMART Center for short. Well, I think it'll make it easier to provide the CIT training. You don't know me! This is video from two years ago that provides a sneak peek into just how real these crisis intervention scenarios are. In a partnership with the Minnesota CIT Officers Association, it offers another layer to the job. If you can have people that are trained to understand and see 
misbehaviors and report that to police officers, firefighters, or ambulance people that are showing up at a scene. I think you're going to take off in the right direction versus the wrong direction. Sue Abder Holden with the National Alliance on Mental Illness Minnesota stresses suicide awareness is at an all-time high. We have more people seeking care than ever before. In fact, the Minnesota Sheriff's Association reports as many as half of prisoners in Minnesota are mentally ill. It's a societal issue. Now with a mix of county and state funding to build this facility, the hope is easier access will give law enforcement, fire, dispatch, and EMS personnel across the state another tool to help people in crisis. Maybe we can end some of these tragedies that we've seen across the United States. Brett Hoffland, 5 Eyewitness News. And construction could begin at the end of the year. Departments all over Minnesota will be able to access this center for crisis intervention training. And if you or someone you know needs help, you can call the National Suicide Prevention Hotline. That number is 1-800-273-TALK. Up next, Darren Broughton and Brian McDaniel will join me for political analysis. And for one year now, Minnesotans have been able to buy liquor on Sundays. We check in with local stores to see how the law has affected their businesses. July 1st marked one year that Minnesota liquor stores have been allowed to sell on Sundays. It's a controversial issue that was debated for years at the state capitol. One year into Sunday sales, chief political reporter Tom Hauser looks at how stores are doing. The majority of Minnesota liquor store owners seem to oppose the idea of Sunday liquor sales last year. It's good for customers. It's bad for business. I, I think we'll be hard-pressed. Uh, to, for this to be a profit-making venture for our city. That was Edina City Manager Scott Neal in 2017, talking about his three city-run liquor stores. This is Scott Neal in 2018. It's not too soon for me to eat my words from last year. Neal says he expects gross revenue to actually be up about $240,000 over 2017, with about 50000 of that being profit. As we begin in our operations to figure out uh, what kind of sales happen on Sunday compared to any other day of the week, because they are a little different. Uh, I, we, we hope to develop marketing strategies around that that can increase our profits even more. 549. Neil says liquor sales on Sundays have come at the expense of sales on Fridays and Saturdays. Liquor store clerk Michael Levin works some Sundays and says business remains steady after an initial Sunday surge. I mean, the very first. Sunday we were open, people were coming in and taking selfies. They were so excited about it. And then it sort of, it sort of teetered off after, after a while. Customers like Debbie Christensen of Golden Valley love the convenience of Sunday sales. I like it, so we don't have to think about it ahead of time, and we can just run to the liquor store on Sunday. Certainly the convenience of Sunday liquor sales had something to do with the increase in sales here in Edina, but don't underestimate the power of the Minnesota Vikings. During their great playoff run last year, they say there was a steady stream of customers in and out the door here on Sundays. Thank you for coming in. It's hard to say if the Edina story is true throughout the state, but we do have some liquor tax revenue figures that might shed some light on the situation. Through the first three quarters since last July 1st, state liquor, wine, and beer tax collections totaled $61.9 million. That's 2.3 million more than the 59.6 million in revenue during the same period in 2017. There's no way of knowing how much of that might be due to Sunday sales.
because they don't break those figures out. Did you want a bag for that? At smaller liquor stores like Sherrits in St. Paul, owner Dana Rose says Sunday sales are probably a bigger boost to bigger liquor stores and chains. As expected, no surprise, Sundays are pretty slow. With expenses, it's hard to break even on a Sunday. Rose says he has benefited from extra foot traffic on Sundays and other days because of a housing boom along University Avenue. But he's trying to make the best of having to open on Sundays. One thing that is working on Sundays is sparkling wine sales because people are having mimosas with brunch. <laughs> but other than that, I don't see uh, much. It's, um, it's a fight. It's a fight to keep my head above water. In St. Paul, Tom Hauser, 5 Eyewitness News. Okay, time now for political analysis. Joining them this, us this week, we have Republican strategist Brian McDaniel. Thanks for being here. We have DFL strategist Darren Broton. Thanks for being here. So, early voting off to a strong start. We want to take a look. Let's check the numbers out first before we begin. So, you can see, as of July 5th, the numbers that we have right now, nearly 17,000 absentee ballots have been sent out. Then, when you look at two years ago, more than 10,000 were sent out to potential absentee voters. So, Brian, I'll start with you. I mean, what's your take on these numbers? Is this surprising? Because that's a big difference. Well, I'm not surprised at all. This is something that people are just getting more comfortable with. And I think that it's also something that campaigns, quite appropriately, are making a big, they're placing a lot of emphasis on that. Because remember, primary voters, it's not who has the most support. It's who has the most support who actually gets out and vote. So the more people you can get to vote early, the better off you are. What would you say, Darren? Is this something that's really going to affect these primary races? It does. And I think if you look at the numbers a little bit deeper, you'll see a lot of those numbers come out of Hennepin County, uh, where there's a very contested primary for the open 5th congressional seat. Uh, I think those numbers would be even higher if we were to make the decision to move our primary out of uh, mid-August to either early June or even late May. So a different date. You kind of you brought up the contested races. We know that there are a bunch of big ones. We've got governor, both sides, DFL, attorney general, also the fifth and eighth congressional districts. How are some of these big contested races really going to affect the early voting period? Would you say, Darren? Well, a lot of these candidates are working overtime to get, make sure that their hardest, hardcore supporters show up and vote early, so they are locked in place. Also, voters would like to probably enjoy doing that because then you're not harassed by the candidates day in and day out because once you've cast your ballot, you're done. You're done. You said I'm done with it. I mean, Brian, what's your take on August 14th, the primary itself? Well, I mean, it's certainly better than when it was September. And uh, I think it'll be better when hopefully very soon it's June and, uh, you know, May. Well, earlier is better. Earlier the better. Without question. So a lot of you at home, I mean, you've been watching TV, we've been watching TV. We haven't really seen many TV ads out so far for these contested primary races. Is that something that you find unusual or are candidates this time around saying, you know, I'm going to be more fiscally responsible, Brian? Well, I mean, it makes me nervous because, you know, the candidates that I support, I want to see them out there working hard, work, doing as much as they can to actually get votes in. However, you know, before 4th of July, it's really not necessarily a great use of your money to be up on TV. People aren't paying attention. Plus, with, with so much more being done on online or on the computer, there are different ways to do, sure. to reach people. Well, exactly. So, Darren, speaking of that, you've got social media, you've got mailers. Now, if you don't see the candidate on TV, maybe it's not as big of a deal. What's your take on that? Does TV reign king as much as it used to? It does. I mean, 
the numbers have shifted, obviously, to online and other ways to communicate, but television is still the most effective way to get your message across because usually, especially if you go into a primary season, going into even an off-year election, voters tend to skew older, which means they always were the ones who are going to be watching television. They're not going to be sitting there on Facebook or playing around on Google all day. That's true. Okay, so quick, we're talking about the outstate Minnesota Democrats in particular. There's some who are saying, you know what, I'm not even going to vote for the candidates who are endorsed because they're both Metro candidates. Is this ostracizing voters? I mean, as we look, are there some that are saying, you know, Darren, we're going to be alienated in some way? How big of this of a factor is this going well, to play? Well, as a product of greater Minnesota, I do think it's a little concerning that we don't have someone of a balanced ticket, uh, especially on our DFL endorsed candidate race. People coming from greater Minnesota, you bring a unique perspective that just as much as you have a unique perspective coming from suburbia or a part of the inner core, what we really want as elected officials is having someone that has that can balance that out. And sure. having someone on the ticket that can bring that unique perspective is more important than ever. Brian, quickly, is this a plus for... Uh, excuse me, for Republicans, for GOP? Oh or is it wait and see? It's not wait and see. This is okay. absolutely, I mean, the Democrats haven't made their job impossible. They've made their job extremely more difficult than it needed to be. The night before uh, Representative Murphy's running mate was announced, DFL friends were calling me saying, we're not going to tell you who it is, but you will die. Ooh. And we were <laughs> shocked. Yikes. Peace always remember, though, is the last time Republicans endorsed a greater Minnesota candidate for governor was 1986. Okay. Good point there. Republican strategist Brian McDaniel, we thank you for being here. DFL strategist, we appreciate you being here. Darren Broton. All right, coming up next, Brian McDaniel sticking around for Face Off. He'll be joined by Sarah Walker. We'll be back in two minutes. Time now for Face Off. Brian McDaniel is back here with us. Thanks can't for being here. And DFL strategist, he can't get enough. Sarah Walker's with us, too. You can't happy get enough as well. We're happy you're here. So this has been a big week. We've been talking a lot about the Supreme Court nominees, hearing a lot of chatter. Of course, President Trump going to announce on Monday, expected to announce who his pick would be. Sarah, let's start with you. Anybody stand out in particular? Well, it seems like his two top choices are Barrett and Kavanaugh, which sort of exposes a rift between the Republican um, current base under Trump and sort of the traditional, as they call them, swamp. So Kavanaugh would be the swamp. But the reality is, is that under any of his picks, it's very. this is going to be the most conservative justice um, Supreme Court we will have seen in decades, and they all make Clarence Thomas look like a moderate. Okay, well, Brian, we've you know heard a couple names floating around, yep. some top names. I mean, any to you know what Sarah was just saying, any that are maybe particularly good that you see? Well, I think that I think that the Democrats are going to paint whoever he puts forward as a, you know a right wing crackpot, you know Roe v. Wade hating hating uh, so and so. But you know what I've been impressed with, you know, as controversial as President Trump is in most ways, and as as uh, as uh, out of the box as he is, his process for selecting Supreme Court justices has been very traditional. He picks people with strong jurisprudential backgrounds, and I suspect that'll continue. Okay, so when we look at Republicans in particular, there's pushback from Republicans on two fronts, really. Some are saying we don't want somebody who's insufficiently conservative. Others are saying we don't want someone who's going to be too hostile to Roe v. Wade. 
what do you make of that? I mean, how contentious is the process going well, to some, be? Well, I mean, I mean, you have to remember, everyone has to get has to get you know approved by the Senate, and there are pro-choice Republicans in the Senate. So somebody who is too overtly anti-Roe v. Wade is is going to have a hard time getting endorsed. And with, like like with uh, with Justice Cat or Judge Kavanaugh, you know, he is somebody who is kind of looked at as more moderate when it came to Obamacare, and that has scared some people. But any one judge's one vote doesn't concern me. Okay, we you know this is a national scale, but as we look, Sarah, kind of locally, we're talking midterm elections, mm -hmm. some liberal groups are saying we do not want a Supreme Court nominee who does not support abortion rights, who does not support equal marriage rights or contraception rights. Will this choice affect midterm elections in Minnesota? Oh, I think it absolutely will. I think for anyone who has even been remotely disengaged or sitting on the sidelines, especially women who are going to I think drive a lot of the election results, this is going to engage them. Because this isn't just about Roe versus Wade, which is what I think mainstream media wants to focus on. This is about fundamental civil rights. All of his choices are also pro-law enforcement. In a period in which we've had and demonstrated rampant problems with our criminal justice system, privacy, it'll also have impacts on decisions around voting rights and, and voter ID, which Minnesota has already been through that battle. So if we want to see a rollback in all the things that Minnesotans have fought for and made decisions on already, we have to be concerned, and we will see, I think, a tremendous amount of money spent on making sure that moderate Republicans and moderate Democrats vote against his decision. We will see that. Okay, switching gears here, we know this has been in the news this week with the EPA head Scott Pruitt resigning. There were different scandals, um, congressional investigations. What does this mean, Brian, as you look at the Trump administration? Is this something that's a negative, or can you see something well, positive coming well, from it's this? Well, not, it's not going to be, it's not a positive. I, I mean, uh, uh, Secretary Pruitt did not maybe have the spirit of, uh, of public service within him, though if you look at what he did as far as deregulation, I mean, I think he did exactly what the president wanted him to, and he was a member in good standing that way. However, if you look at some of his personal dealings, there was a lot of scandal, a lot of controversy there, and it probably was the time for him to go. Will it affect midterm elections, Sarah? I don't know if this will. I think there's so many other large issues, but I do think it's emblematic of the kind of people that Trump has appointed and the fact that he claimed he wanted to do away with the swamp, but in fact what he did was bring the swamp to D.C. Okay, well, DFL strategist Sarah Walker, thank you. Republican strategist Brian McDaniel, thank you both for being here. Up next, guys, a special birthday present for a Minnesota Vikings fan favorite. That story when we come back. A favorite Vikings fan shares her birthday with our nation's Independence Day. Millie Wall turned 100 years old on the 4th of July. And not only did she get a happy birthday tweet from the Vikings, she also got a special phone call from NFL Commissioner Roger Goodell. Thank you very much, Roger. Thank you for remembering. Thank you for remembering. No one could forget Millie. We told you about Millie last winter when the team surprised her with tickets to the playoffs and Super Bowl. She also saw the Minneapolis miracle. You all remember it, the Vikings' stunning win over the New Orleans Saints just before the NFC Championship game. There it is, boom. Well, at 100 years old, Millie was born before the NFL began. And you can listen to episodes of At Issue every week on iTunes and Podcast One. We have them listed at KSTP.com. That's all for now. We'll see you next week.